U.S.-China competition and foreign relations. I don't think the Chinese say themselves that they want to be the dominant power in the region, but I think everybody believes that that is their goal. They want other countries to show deference to China, to put China's interests first. Countering online extremism. But with QAnon in Germany, we saw that the new publications that came out, the new narratives that came out of the U.S. were translated on the same day in Germany. So even the language barrier is not something that hinders these things. Russia's Middle East policy. The first consequence of Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon would most likely, by expert accounts, spark a nuclear race in the Middle East. And that, of course, in and of itself is dangerous and destabilizing. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASFI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. First up this week, Fergus Hunter speaks with Bonnie Glazer from the German Marshall Fund about the state of China and its relationships with the United States and the West. They look at the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party, how nation states are responding to this, and the current state of cross-strait relations. We're very lucky to have in the room one of the most authoritative and and clear-minded commentators on regional security and China's foreign relations and US-China competition, Bonnie Glaser. Welcome to ASPE. Thank you for having me. We'll start off with a big question. We've had a, a lot of big developments in China's relations with the world this year in American politics. So we've seen Xi's reappointment for a third term as General Secretary an unusually good showing for the incumbent Democrats in US midterms, which you know, strengthens Joe Biden's hand, uh, although there will be pressure from Republicans on China policy. Uh, we've got major policy developments in, in Washington, the CHIPS Act. We've seen the export controls on semiconductors. Summit season, which has had all sorts of consequential meetings, the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan earlier this year. And in the background, of course, there's the invasion of Ukraine with Russia aligning uh, with China. So it's been a big year. What's your assessment right now of the state of China's relations with the US and the West more broadly? Well, I think that the US-China relationship and China's relationship with the West more broadly is very contentious, at times acrimonious. There is intense competition underway. And I think that the Chinese have begun perhaps to adjust to the fact that this is a new normal in their relationship. So the good part of the developed world, we just saw in Bali where China's leader Xi Jinping met with many of the leaders, particularly from developed countries, a few from the global south, um, particularly Southeast Asia. But I think that the Chinese are determined under Xi Jinping to pursue a strategy of ensuring that they can achieve their their domestic objective of national rejuvenation, uh, which Xi Jinping has set a target date for 2049. And so he's recognized that the international environment is extremely negative. Uh, And he said this at the 20th Party Congress in the political report. He talked about the stormy seas and and the waves, and, and he did not use the term or the phrase which has been included in every party Congress political report since the 13th Party Congress in 1987, that peace and development is the keynote of the era or the times. 
Xi Jinping has obviously concluded that the risk of war is growing with the United States. And he is trying, I think, to steal the Chinese people, calling for struggle so that China will be able to achieve these objectives that he has set. And so Xi Jinping's meeting with Biden for the first time, there seems to be a desire on the Chinese side, not just the U.S. side, to put a floor under the relationship, to talk about potential risk reduction measures, perhaps to find some areas of cooperation. So I would be reluctant to call this a major inflection point, uh, but perhaps the slowdown in the Chinese economy exacerbated by the COVID-19 policies in China may have led Xi Jinping to think that he needs a bit of a breathing space to focus on some of his domestic problems and have a bit of stability in the relationship with the United States, maybe also with Australia and other countries. But I don't think that this is in any way a strategic readjustment in China's relationship with the world and its foreign policy. I think it is rather tactical. What do you think the scope for stabilization there is? You know, Anthony Blinken might go to Beijing for a visit soon, I think. And what could that improvement look like uh, within those limitations of this kind of entrenched competition now? Well, essentially, the US and China have agreed on two work streams that they will pursue going forward. One is in the category of controlling risk, managing tensions. So we hope that they will talk about risk reduction measures. Some people have called this guardrails that will prevent the relationship from spiraling out of control. And that is in part a military conversation, but I think not exclusively one. And then the other work stream is areas we can cooperate in. And I think there are issues like food security and global health and climate change, where both countries recognize that they do share common interest. And they are increasingly being pressured from other countries around the world who want to see progress in addressing these issues. And without the United States and China engaging, the progress tends to be very slow or sometimes even comes to a halt. Zooming out, I mean, what do you think is the CCP's and Xi Jinping's overarching ambition with all of this, the overarching strategy? Is it regional hegemony? Is it displacement of the US from Asia? Is it being a global, the most global dominant power? What does that look like? What does the objective look like for China right now? Well, based on what the Chinese have talked about themselves, they clearly want to be a major power in the region. I think they want to, they don't talk about being the global power, but they see themselves increasingly as a global leader. China has long said that the the international order is unjust and unreasonable, and now they have more capabilities to try and revise that order. So Xi Jinping in 2018 said that China should lead the reform of global governance. So that is a great ambition of shaping international order to make it more favorable to Chinese preferences and, and interests. I don't think the Chinese say themselves that they want to be the dominant power in the region, but I think everybody believes that that is their goal. They want other countries to show deference to China, to put China's interests first, and countries that do not 
protect Chinese interests and make their own decisions based on their interests often get punished. And we, of course, we saw this when South Korea decided to deploy the THAAD missile defense system, which was necessary for its security, at least that's the way the South Koreans saw it. And of course, they became targeted with a great deal of economic coercion and Australia with a series of steps that it took, culminating with the call for an independent investigation of the origins of COVID-19 was just seen as a threat to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. So Australia became the target of economic coercion. Uh, so I think that it's quite clear that China wants to make sure that no country can challenge China's interests in this region. And I think it wants to organize the region, as Xi Jinping said back in 2015, in a way that Asia will be ruled by Asians, not by countries from outside this region. Whether or not China wants to displace the United States as you know, the top global uh, superpower in the world, I think remains to be seen. I think China does want to be a global leader. But as China's capabilities grow, as it power grows, I think its ambition will grow as well. And what is your view of how the US and American partners are currently responding to that ambition and that activity? Are there real flaws? Are there strengths? How do you view that response at the moment? There's been a good deal of progress in the cooperation among like-minded countries and especially our alliances in First, making ourselves more resilient, and secondly, countering, pushing back on some of the activities that China is engaged in. And in some places, we we have made good progress. I think that we are starting to protect supply chains where we didn't realize that we were so dependent on China. We saw this at the beginning of the pandemic. We have work to do when it comes to rare earth minerals, for example. Most countries are, are still very dependent on China, particularly for the processing of rare earths. And then there's areas like contributing to infrastructure building around the world where there is an enormous need for greater infrastructure. And China came out with its Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. And I think Western countries have been struggling to come up with an effective way to compete with China and, and to make themselves relevant and important, particularly in the global South. So I don't think we've done as well as we need to do there. Uh, we've had these new coalitions that have formed. I think Quad is one of the most successful, which goes back to you know 2007, but has been revived in a way that has made it far more relevant, I think, than ever before. First and foremost, delivering public goods to the region. That's really the top priority. But of course, it is driven to these four countries share this concern about China and its ambitions. And so by working together, we have an increased opportunity to be able to prevent China from setting the rules of the road, inserting its norms, undermining the rules-based order that I think the like-minded countries, democracies in particular, would like to, to defend and, and strengthen. Because of some of those domestic political factors, the US is clearly limited right now in how much it's bringing to the game on the trade and economic side. How much of an issue do you think that is? Well, I think that the economic pillar of the US Indo-Pacific strategy remains weak. 
the United States always falls on its military capabilities first. That's our go-to area where we don't really need to rely on other countries and we can act unilaterally. But it's quite clear that in this region, even as U.S. military presence is very welcome, that many countries, and especially in Southeast Asia, but even beyond, would like to see greater economic involvement. There's certainly been more diplomatic involvement. I think we've seen, despite Russia's invasion of Ukraine, quite a bit of diplomatic activity in this region and uh, with the region. The United States, for example, just a few months ago held the first ever Pacific Islands Leaders Forum in Washington, D.C., and we've had several visits out to the Pacific Islands, and we just had President Biden in the region for the G20 and the East Asia Summit. Vice President Harris has made three trips out to the region. So I think the diplomatic engagement has been good. But as you say, economically, I think the United States continues to fall short. I've always believed that it was a mistake that the United States withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now the CPTPP. But there have been efforts by the Biden administration to engage more effectively in the economic realm. The Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is a work in progress. We'll have to see how much is achieved over the next couple of years. There are, I think, 11 working groups and a range of of issues and some enthusiasm in the region because countries want the U.S. to be more economically involved. But in my view, it really is no substitute for a real more traditional trade agreement that has market access. I think this is what most countries want to see. Let's zero in on Taiwan, obviously a real point of concern lately, a potential flashpoint for a conflict that would be or could be catastrophic. There's unending speculation about the window of when invasion might occur. What is your assessment of the current state of cross-strait relations and the next decade in that part of the world? Well, I'd start by saying that war is not inevitable in the Taiwan Strait. And the policies of all three sides will determine whether or not we actually have a military conflict. The state of the cross-strait relationship has really been quite poor since Tsai Ing-wen took power in 2016. And she is finishing up her second term. Her last year in office will be next year, January 2024. Taiwan will have elections. And China just decided, you know, from the day that she was elected, because she would not embrace their principle that Taiwan is part of China, that they would not have any official engagement with her. And, you know, the relationship has soured further over time as China used oppressive means to control Hong Kong. And that was really gave a set of lessons to Taiwan about how they never want to live under any version of one country, two systems, and China really sort of can't be be trusted. But what is really driving, I think, concern about potential conflict is the really rapid progress that China has made in its military capabilities. Many believe that China is close to, if it doesn't already have, the capability to seize and control Taiwan, potentially before the United States could intervene uh, on Taiwan's behalf. And so there's a lot of thinking about how we strengthen deterrence. Ultimately, we need to have more effective military capability to defend Taiwan, but that's a longer-term problem. Most people think that comes in the next decade, in the 2030s. And so in this shorter time frame, 
we need to do more diplomatically, economically to warn China of what the risks are of using force against Taiwan. So governments are talking together about the kind of economic sanctions that could be imposed on China if China were to use force against Taiwan, drawing lessons from the case of Russia when it invaded Ukraine. And there might be some tools that would be similar, but there'd probably be some other tools that would be quite different China is very interdependent, connected with the world. And I think that many companies that were willing to take a hit and pull out of Russia might not be quite so willing to pull out of China and give up that market, which is so important, for example, to German automobile companies like Volkswagen. But I do think that the state of cross-strait relations will probably not improve if we get another DPP president in Taiwan. They could deteriorate further, but ultimately we have to be very clear about from the United States, I think, perspective and other countries, what actions should we take that will strengthen deterrence in a credible way and what actions will perhaps lead to the contrary result and provoke China to use force. And we have to be very clear to avoid anything that might provoke China to attack Taiwan. I did want to get into that. Is there a, a risk of Taiwan's friends internationally, especially in the US, taking steps that, that might antagonize and provoke China into, into acting? I think to some extent, some of the rhetoric in particular that we have heard in the United States has antagonized China. Particularly, President Biden has said twice that if Taiwan wants to be independent, we should leave it up to them, uh, that it's really their choice. I think that kind of language is potentially dangerous because China could conclude that we actually would support an independent Taiwan. It could embolden a future leader in Taiwan then to declare independence. And the United States then says, okay, we, we support that. China does have red lines. Not everything is a red line in China. There's plenty we can and should do to strengthen Taiwan's security. But we should not say that we would recognize an independent Taiwan. We should not state that we want to return to a mutual defense treaty relationship, which we had with the Republic of China from 1954 to 1979. And we did abrogate that treaty as part of the terms of normalization when we normalized uh, our relationship with the PRC. So I think the bottom line is that we have to be careful that our words and our actions should be strengthening deterrence in the Taiwan Strait. There's plenty of things we can and should do that China will see as antagonistic, including signing perhaps free trade agreements with Taiwan and sending senior officials to Taiwan. In my view, that's something that there are good reasons to do. But when it comes to those real red lines that China has, I think we need to be careful. What about in Taiwan? There does seem to be a pretty well-developed sense of national identity there now, separate from China, but also a very prudent caution about sticking with de facto independence, not doing anything to formally declare independence. So the prospect of a willing, peaceful unification seems quite remote. How is the Taiwanese government talking about this at the moment? What is the mood in the population in Taiwan right now about the state of relations with China? 
Well, I think the mood in Taiwan's government is a feisty, we're going to defend our freedoms, we're going to stand up for ourselves, we're going to win over more friends. A great deal of attention that's been paid to the war in Ukraine. Apparently, there was quite a bit of coverage on television, social media in Taiwan. And I think some members of the public took that seriously and and see the threat as growing, but I think they're in the minority. I think the vast majority of people in Taiwan just have lived uh, 100 miles away from that that great growing threat from China uh, for so long that they don't think that an invasion is really likely. They see forms of like disinformation coming from China and and they don't like it. They but they want to preserve their freedoms, but they just don't think that there really is an urgent need to to bolster the ability of Taiwan to defend itself. There is some support for the growing defense spending, which I think now is almost at 2.4% of GDP. At the lowest point under, I think, Ma Yingzhou was about 1.9. So there's more support for military spending, and President Tsai herself talks a great deal about the threat. I think there's a gap between maybe the government seeing more threat than, um, than the people um, and even from the military and government's perspective, there seems to me to be more concern about what we call these gray zone threats, that is, threats that fall below the threshold that would provoke a military response. So the PLA aircraft operating in Taiwan's air defense identification zone uh, would be one example you know, of a gray zone threat. They now have the naval ships that are operating across the center line quite fre- frequently as well. But I think that they believe that these gray zone threats pose a greater danger to Taiwan and more imminent danger than the threat of invasion. So there's even a bit of a gap, I think, between Taiwan and the United States on that score. Do you think they'll increasingly look to economic coercion both to punish Taiwan while also intimidating others from engaging with Taiwan? We have not seen a lot of economic coercion by Beijing against Taiwan. Uh, It really started with the blocking of mainland Chinese tourists from going to Taiwan after Tsai Ing-wen was elected. And then subsequently, there was a ban on pineapples and three kinds of apples. And after the Speaker of the House from the United States, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, there were about 2,000 products that China banned from importation into mainland China. But as I understand it, that constituted less than 1% of Taiwan's exports because China is very dependent on Taiwan for certain items. And most of them are highly advanced technology and particularly semiconductors. So I think China is extremely unlikely to take coercive action against those kinds of products. The question is whether China will begin to use economic coercion against Taiwanese investors in China. We saw one episode of that late last year with the Far Eastern Group, where there were large fines that were imposed on this big conglomerate, allegedly for providing donations to DPP candidates in Taiwan. And that is something that the Chinese don't want to tolerate any longer. 
I have not seen that action taken against other companies, but it's an example of something that China could do if it does want to use more economic coercion. But China will pay a cost. Taiwanese investment in mainland China is huge. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about another target of economic coercion, which is Australia. So Australia's trodden a very interesting path on China over the last five or so years, going from that that booming relationship, economic ties, to the point that many in Washington thought they were almost losing Australia. Now, Australia is probably one of the most forward-leaning states on countering Chinese government's behaviour. We have felt that blowback here in the form of economic coercion and diplomatic coercion. You've been in Australia for the last week. What's your impression of the discussion here at the moment? Well, I think in the aftermath of Prime Minister Albanese's uh, meeting with Xi Jinping, there is a hope and maybe even an assessment that the Australia-China relationship may be moving into a new phase of willingness on the part of the Chinese to re-engage, to have dialogue about some issues, whether or not China will actually begin to lift these restrictions on Australia, I think remains as a question mark. But I think there is some belief that if Australia and China continue to have some dialogue and improve the relationship in some areas where they agree, that over time, that China might stop sending signals to the parts of its system to stop importing some of these items like wine and lobsters from Australia. The one area that will be more difficult is the barley case, because in that case, Australia has actually taken the case to the World Trade Organization. And so it may be that that ends up going to the dispute settlement mechanism, probably take years before a ruling comes down, thanks to the United States and its interference with the dispute settlement mechanism. But I doubt that Australia would withdraw that case. But um, of course, that's something to be looked at down the road. I think this will take time, but China has recognized that Australia is willing to stand up for its interests and its principles, that it can't be intimidated and bullied like other countries were, like South Korea, where we saw a little bit of a compromise there. And I think that when countries end up caving into Chinese pressure, the Chinese then conclude that that country is weak, and then they find other demands to make on them. So I think Australia looked at what other countries experienced and drew very important lessons from that. And so it's taken the Chinese some time to understand that Australia is not quite the country that they thought it was. But of course, the Chinese will never admit they were wrong. They made mistakes. They overreached or whatever. But maybe we are at a turning point in how they are going to deal with Australia going forward. But it will be gradual. Seems like there's been a bit of frustration on the Chinese side as well about that resilience and resolve and the lack of results. Yes. Uh, On that note, thank you very much for joining us, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Access to violent right-wing extremist online subcultures is easier than ever. Katia Theodorakis speaks to Myra Dietrich about how digital public spheres are being exploited for radicalisation and to spread disinformation. 
Myro explains what authorities, society, and social media platforms can do to prevent and push back against extremist attempts to dominate digital realities. Mira, your research looks at transnational digital networks and far-right communities, conspiracy um, narratives, how they're proliferated um, sort of in those, what I believe you call digital alternative realities. Can you tell us um, what your observations are, the key trends in this space and how online and offline um, dynamics interact? In general, I'd say it's quite uh, important to recognize that um, the far-right and conspiracy-driven networks are global networks. Um, if you look at QAnon, that's sort of one of the binding factors that bring um, these conspiracy narratives and far-right narratives all over the world because local communities will tr just translate them. So we usually see the same topics and the same documentations just being translated to different um, local contexts. So we definitely see an emergence of a global alternative reality that's being created in online spaces. Your think tank or your center, the Center for Monitoring, Analysis and Strategies, put out a report recently, also in English, which I can highly recommend, about QAnon's influence in Germany. And apparently QAnon has the largest following outside of the US in Germany. Can you tell us more about this and why you think it resonated so much there or what, what we're seeing in terms of adapting some of those US-specific or global narratives to a, to a German local context? Yeah, definitely. If you have a first glance at it, it sort of is a bit weird that QAnon, which is such an US-focused conspiracy narrative network, is also um, that prevalent in Germany. But I think it has to do a lot with how QAnon is a collection of different uh, conspiracy narratives and how good they can be adapted to local context. And I think some of the narratives of drinking um, children's blood sort of um, resonated very well with anti-Semitic narratives that we had in Germany for a really long time. But it also speaks, I think, a lot about how the conspiracy and far-right scene in Germany sees their own power if they think that the only thing that's going to save them is sort of near mystical one-time event, they call it the storm, mm. where foreign power just takes care of all their problems. I think it speaks quite well of how they don't think they have any power and can actually change anything. That's But, really fascinating in terms of it speaks to sort of a, a disillusionment or disenfranchisement with the establishment so it's not just socioeconomic that people feel like they don't have a say in their politics but also that their voice is not the voice of the people so it speaks to populist sentiments but at the same time you mentioned it it works well with existing anti-semitic narratives and could you get into this a little bit more but I, I sense there's some sort of esoteric element to this which also goes well with sort of right-wing or nazi narratives I think in general, QAnon offers a lot of very, um, so more like Hollywood narratives. They're quite interesting to people to sort of spice up their world and are quite narratively interesting for them. So this global fight of good against evil and also in the, in the pandemic, we had a lot of problems that are sort of structural and are quite complex. And QAnon offered a good help for them to reduce the complexity of our world into this uh, battle of good, good against evil and basically just claiming they're like 12 bad people. If we get rid of these 12 bad people, everything will be good again. So it helped people sort of deal with the crisis that they were living through and also in giving them some sort of agency. So now they are suddenly part of this digital army, as they call themselves, and they are fighting for children being abused and this global fight of good against evil. 
And I think it helped a lot of people cope with feeling hopelessness or feeling um, not in control. Wow, that almost sounds like it has sort of religion-like tendencies in sort of in terms of the the answers it offers as a comprehensive system, not just a very local solution to a specific problem, but more like this is how the world works and the forces of good against evil are raiding against each other and you're on the good side and you will prevail. That sounds like a very mythical kind of explanation for the world's troubles. Yeah, definitely. QAnon is a really interesting example of a sort of cult-like structure being born in digital spaces. Usually cults have some sort of offline events, some places where they congregate. But we haven't seen that with QAnon. QAnon is purely a digital phenomenon that's been created. That's really interesting that, you know, that's something where you can't just go down to your local chapter and you can join, you know, the Friday evening activities that are also community building and you get this sense of belonging from it, that it's purely ideological, but has such a wide currency. And also QAnon is sort of a very interesting example to highlight in a point that's often been missed when we talk about conspiracy narratives. Often the idea is people believe in one conspiracy narrative and we just have to bring more facts and then they will disagree about this point where they differ from reality. But I think QAnon shows that it's not just about one conspiracy narrative that they believe in. It's more why we at CMAS talk more about conspiracy ideology. It's not just this one narrative where they differ from reality. It's more that they see this whole world from an ideological standpoint that's only driven by conspiracy narratives. Mm. So everything that happens in the world is always explained by conspiracy narratives. So it's it's a complete worldview. You're, yeah. you're getting, you can derive answers to a lot of questions. You can understand how the world works. Your point being that combating that is not as simple as here, let me give you some facts because it's a whole ecosystem of an alternative truth that's out there. And what's very fascinating is that when the protests happened here in Australia, for example, our you know convoy to Canberra and those freedom protests and spending some time in those telegram groups, one very common story was about give us the name of the 18 people really believing that our federal police and politicians were harboring the names of 18 pedophiles. And that became one of the key rallying points. So let's forget about the vaccines and that, you know, governments are committing genocide by making people get vaccinated and that they're locking us up and stealing our freedom, but they're also harboring pedophiles. And this shows how corrupt our system is. And that would speak to this connection that, yeah, it was originally a narrative that originated in the United States with some local conditions, but then it was adapted in Germany and, and people then find something they can hang this up on. Here in Australia, I find that really fascinating. Do you see a lot of this sort of um, narratives just traveling transnationally and being adapted to local conditions and then gaining extra currency? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just a global alternative reality that's applicable to all the different countries. See, we see exactly the same narratives being peddled everywhere nowadays. And with the internet, um, these communities are heavily interlinked with each other. Um, Australia and the US share the common language English. But with QAnon in Germany, we saw that the new publications that came out, the new narratives that came out of the US were translated on the same day in Germany. So even the language barrier is not something that hinders these things. Wow. And it's quite interesting to see that often you don't even ha have to adapt these narratives to local conditions. For example, with the recent election that we saw in Germany, a lot of QAnon people in Germany talked about Dominion voting system being part um, to rig our election. 
And interestingly, in Germany, we don't have Dominion voting systems because we don't have voting systems. We don't have voting machines. It's not done ele electronically. So in this case, there wasn't even a need to adapt it to a local condition. But of course, the more open a conspiracy narrative is, and the more that it links with sort of the cultural cachet of certain narratives, the more successful it is in a country. Yeah, we also had the Germanian voting machines, even though we vote on a piece of paper with a pencil. And they ended up coming up with their own story that was adapted to hear um, about a particular cabinet minister that, you know, he had not done what he was supposed to do. And it was proof of, you know, this new world order coming into effect, it would, you know, happening right in front of our eyes that he didn't deliver the writ to the governor general the way it had was supposed to be. And they kept talking about sort of these stories about a broken election, the broken promises to the people, which is really fascinating. Maybe coming back to where a lot of this happens on in digital spaces and Telegram stands out here. I believe the German government sort of recently tried to intervene more with one minister even saying it, it should be banned because content moderation is such a big problem there. Can you explain a little bit more about what happened in that space and what, what were some government attempts at intervening or how this can be combated? Because maybe if you banned one platform, those narratives and the groups would just migrate to another. Do, do you have any thoughts on an effective way to intervene in those digital spaces? Telegram offers a quite complicated um, challenge, I'd say, Because in general, the way that they're set up is that they usually don't follow local laws. And I think that's a big problem if we have actors like this. I think the German state um, tried to do a lot of different ways to sort of um, enforce German local laws. The best thing that led them a way forward was sort of working through the app stores to a contact at Google that sort of started the first talk with them. And although our interior minister um, talked about banning Telegram, she quickly realized that that's maybe not the best idea. I think when we talk about regulation of these platforms, I think it's important that the West and democracy countries see what sort of example they lead in the world and see that other countries who are not democratic um, could use the same argumentation to ban um, dissent in their countries. So I think banning Telegram, banning these platforms is sort of the last resort. But on the other hand, we see that Telegram definitely reacts to sort of these threats. In Brazil, the highest court um, made Telegram illegal. And within a few days, Telegram reached out to them and announced a lot of changes that the country was hoping for. So definitely, Telegram definitely reacts to these pressures. But I think this allowing a platform that's used by extremists and isn't following the law, but also had a lot has a lot of other uses for other people should be a last resort. Mm, yeah, it's about, I guess, learning to put sort of guardrails around democracy and learning how, you know, the interaction of our, you know, public sphere, how that how we can govern in the public space where some of the key actors and gatekeepers are corporations and and seeing how, I guess, in this sort of where in this digital age. What, what shifts we need to be able to to deal with this and, and move away from seeing as countering this like counterterrorism for for decades, how you put it so well, was it's about putting out fires. But when these are bigger shifts and we need more long-term solutions for that, also because the issues sit at the heart of this dilemma in democratic societies that we do not want to restrict free speech, but there have to be boundaries. So, so do you feel that overall we're moving in the right direction? We just need to do more of it. We need to be clear about what the red lines are. Do you think there are some fundamental shifts 
that still need to happen that we haven't touched on yet in terms of legislation or regulating this? And I think we definitely see in a lot of positive developments. I think one of the hard problems was that um, our security agencies didn't seem to think that digital places are real and that they would have any consequences. And I think we had a lot of very uh, brutal events in the world that sort of showed, um, looking at January 6th, for example, that the emotions and the thoughts of digital spaces don't stay there. They get to the offline world. But looking at these uh, digital problems, I think there's a lot of focus in reducing the supply side of the problem, which means uh, deplatforming or going the legal route to make things illegal or uh, enforce laws. But I think if we really want to tackle this problem, we also have to look at the demand side of these problems. Why is it that so many people want to get lost in these digital alternatives? And I think two main topics arise if we look at this um, for a long term, and that's on the one hand, we have a way more fractured society and it's getting fractured more and more. So people feel really disconnected and don't have communities. These digital alternative realities offer them a replacement family structures and they sort of get lost in these structures. And especially during the pandemic, people lost a lot of the offline connections that they had. So these digital communities were quite interesting for them. And on the other hand, one of the things that I see that drives people in this world is that we now like a lot of purpose-building narratives. So, and we don't have these big narratives that sort of are, why do we live at all? And these um, alternative realities offer um, quite interesting purpose-building narratives for this. In Germany, um, the foreign terrorist attack in Halle, the shooter had a long sword in his car. So he saw himself as being a crusader, fighting for the West against Islamization. And if you look in QAnon, these people think they are part of a global army, of a digital army, in a global battle of good against evil, and they are here to save children from Satanist pedophiles. And I think both of these things are what drives people in these spaces. And it's quite sad to see this as a state, because I think the human drive for community and for a sense of purpose are some of the best qualities that we have. And I think it's quite important that we find better alternatives for these people, that they don't get lost in these alternative realities. That's really interesting. So on one hand, we have to come to terms with this big shift, almost in a philosophical way about how our life or sociological way, how our lives are now organized and, and issues like community and belonging increasingly also play out in digital spaces. But that doesn't mean that it's just an abstract issue where we're sitting there scratching our heads and wondering what to do, because there are some concrete things we already can be doing, governments can do in cooperation with other stakeholders to have a reach into those digital realities and, and draw those lines that are needed for democracy. Could you share with us some practical things that are being done or could be done? Yeah, I think if we want to find a solution for this, it's important to really take digital culture seriously. And in the beginning of the pandemic, we spent a lot of money saving sort of the classical culture, theaters or operas. But a good way to tackle this issue would have been just, for example, do a digital esport tournament. Because we know that doing sports events and sort of de-radicalization, anti-extremism program, that they work. And it wouldn't have been that expensive to do something in the digital world. And we would have reached a really interesting target group of young males who are gamers with sort of problematic group that can be radicalized in these alternative realities. So you're saying we just need to be 
more creative in thinking how the things that have already worked can be adapted also to digital realities. It's not that we have to come up with a completely new playbook, but some of those principles that have guided successful initiatives in the real world, in the in the offline world, so to speak, they could just be implemented also to see how they can fit for digital realities. We just have to think about the situation that we were in at this point. We shut off all the offline world and we drove these people into online world, but we didn't offer them anything there. And I think if we were to take digital reality seriously, these digital places and digital culture seriously, I think we can find a lot of ways where we can adapt old concepts for this new world. That's really important to make that point. I think it's a good way to end. Unfortunately, we're out of time. There'd be so much to talk about. But thank you so much for giving us so much to think about. A, a lot of good pointers on what can actually be done. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Finally, Dr. Alex Bristow speaks to Anna Boshevskaya from the Washington Institute about Russia's policy toward the Middle East. They explore the significance of Russia's relationships in the Middle East in light of the war in Ukraine and how the Russia-China relationship is developing. Anna, welcome to ASPE. You're in Australia for the Beersheba Dialogue, which is a long-running dialogue that ASPE is very fortunate to be able to support between Israel and Australia. We've just finished that yesterday, and there were lots of interesting discussion points, a few of which we might touch back on in this podcast today. So given that we, you were here for Beersheba, I wonder whether we might start in the Middle East, not a geography that Australians think about probably as much as we should, what is your impression of what's going on in the Middle East and what's it important that we do think about from Australia? Sure. First, it's a pleasure to be with you today and thank you for inviting me. What's going on in the Middle East, uh, first and foremost, is a continuation of great power competition. I'm American and so, of course, I'm speaking from an American perspective. The trajectory of American foreign politics, as you know, has shifted in recent years towards great power competition, primarily towards China and secondarily towards Russia. The fact of the matter is the Middle East has always been an arena of great power competition. And Russia historically for several centuries was was a part of it. The added issue now is that China is, is another great power competing in this region. And uh, that's something that we're all going to need to grapple with in the years ahead. Great. Just before we came on air, we were talking about some of that history of Russia in the Middle East. And you were educating me that the start of the Cold War is arguably linked to Russia's involvement in the Middle East. That's an interesting vignette, perhaps, for what we're facing at the moment. Is it worth just touching on that briefly? Yeah. The first crisis, the first major crisis of the Cold War erupted shortly after World War II. And indeed, it it started in the Middle East. And that's something I think we forget, because when we think about the Cold War, we primarily think about Europe. But the fact of the matter is the first major crisis erupted shortly after the end of the war, when Joseph Stalin briefly refused to withdraw from Soviet-occupied Iran, where the Soviet Union had been stationed to protect the supply route. And it took very skillful American diplomacy to eventually end this crisis. But this vignette shows once again that as the years go by time and time again, the Middle East presents itself as this arena of great power competition. And we're now in that world today. And you mentioned Iran there. I think Iran does come across the Australian consciousness from time to time. And the parliament here is is doing an inquiry at the moment into human rights implications of some of the protests, the way the Iranian government is uh, or regime is, is managing those protests. But when we look at Iran, what do we need to be paying attention to? We need to be paying attention to, of course, to the Iranian nuclear program. 
We need to be paying attention to Iran's overall destabilizing activities throughout the Middle East that go far beyond its nuclear file. We need to be paying attention to Iran's relationship with Russia at the moment and how it's impacting Ukraine, but also how it's impacting the Russia-Iran relationship in Syria and specifically in the Middle East overall. Those are very important priorities. Just picking up on Iran again, there is obviously a great concern that Iran will soon, perhaps in a matter of months by some estimates, develop a nuclear weapon. It's obviously been trying to do this for some time. What would be the consequences if, if that happened? Consequences in its region, in the Middle East, but beyond as well. The Australians tend to focus on the Indo-Pacific. Would there perhaps be consequences closer to Australian shores as well? The first consequence of Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon would most likely, by expert accounts, spark a nuclear race in the Middle East. And that, of course, in and of itself is dangerous and destabilizing and raises all sorts of questions. One of those is what could be the role of Russia? Remember that Russia is the country that built the Iranian nuclear reactor in Bushehr. In fact, when we go back to the early 1990s, at a time when the U.S.-Russia relationship was at its absolute best, it was Russia's support of Iran, of the Iranian nuclear program and of arms sales to Iran, that was the one major sticking point in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Russia, and also with Israel and Russia. So the question is, what role could there be for Russia in such a world? And one possibility is quite a big one, quite a big one, because that this is the one area where Russia has considerable expertise. This is Russia's competitive advantage, if you will. And that is the reason why even in the early 1990s, Russia wanted to be involved with Iran on this issue. In other words, Russia simply does not look at proliferation issues the same way as the West does. Russia never perceived the Iranian nuclear program as as dangerous as we did. The Russian state always worried about Iran turning pro-Western more than it worried about Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon. So, especially in the context of Russia's ongoing aggression towards Ukraine, if there is a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, as the West is trying to isolate Russia, it could be that Russia gets another lifeline. Again, to my earlier point, Russia is not isolated globally. It's isolated by liberal democracies. This creates a whole other world of troubling possibilities of how the Russian state could sustain itself. Well, that really is troubling and, and is clearly something that Australia has an interest in, in paying close attention to and working with its allies to, to, to manage and hopefully avoid a scenario like that. I know that there are closer to home, obviously, some significant Muslim-majority countries. I would have thought they would pay close attention to the destabilizing effect of this on the Middle East. I, mm. I'm not an expert on Indonesia. We do have experts here in Aspie. I, I tend to think of Indonesia as uh, as closer to countries like Saudi Arabia. And I guess Saudi Arabia would react very strongly if Iran got a bomb, and that would have knock-on consequences yep. for this region. Yep. And, and if I may add one, one other point, even after uh, Russia's aggression towards Ukraine, when the Russian state broke virtually all norms of international behavior by attacking Ukraine, a peaceful neighbor, an illegal invasion, it's a crime. Russia continued to play a role in the Iran nuclear negotiations. And that's a very important point to note, which highlights how Russia can continue breaking international law, continue behaving in this way in one theater. And yet the West 
wanted Russia's participation, diplomatic participation in another, which highlights the complexity of the situation that we're seeing globally with Ukraine, with Middle East, with uh, with all of these issues that we're discussing today. And if, again, to your earlier question, if Iran does get a nuclear weapon, it simply, again, opens the door for a possibility of more voices saying that Russia can be helpful even as it continues to brutalize Ukraine. Well, while we're talking about Russia, every conversation about Russia can't take place without a horrible invasion that, that Putin has mounted in Ukraine, which is sadly going on and seems to be set to go on for some time yet. What should we be expecting in that conflict? Well, first and foremost, we should be expecting this conflict to continue for a very long time. The war is not nearly over, and we're looking at continued protracted warfare. We're looking at a cold winter ahead for Europe. We're looking at continued Russian mobilization, efforts to break Western unity on Ukraine, and all sorts of other efforts to uh, essentially to continue fighting. We should also be looking at especially renewed fighting in the spring. Excellent. I, I mean, this is perhaps an unfair question for anybody and a very sensitive issue, but do we have any sense of, this is going on for a long time, but do we have any sense of how this might end? The most important thing to know about this war is unless Russia is completely defeated on the battlefield, this conflict is not going to end anytime soon. Even if there is a peace settlement of sorts, the Kremlin will look at it as simply a short-term tactical pause with the aim of regrouping forces in the years ahead to attack again. The idea that Ukraine is not a real nation, that Ukrainians are not a real people, and that Russia needs to eradicate the very idea of Ukraine is deeply entrenched into the ruling elites of, of Russia. It's not simply Vladimir Putin. And until Russia is forced to have a reckoning with itself, which historically for countries comes only with military defeat. Only then can we imagine a complete end to this tragedy. Wow, that's a that's a high bar. I, I guess my when I think of complete defeat, I tend to think of historical examples like the occupation of Germany and Japan. And of yeah. course, those were countries that fought to the end. But unlike Russia, they don't have nuclear weapons. Yes. And it's impossible for us and not that we would want to go and occupy Russia. But um, is there anything obviously short of that that would, that would prompt Russia to acknowledge that, yes, it has lost yeah. change, change its ways. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we're facing a unique challenge with Russia because, as you say, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, these countries did not have nuclear weapons. And yet it was only through military defeat that those countries were forced to have an internal reckoning with, with themselves. With Russia, we could still put Russia in a position of a, a defeat on the battlefield that does not need to resort to the nuclear threat. And that has to do with looking for ways to simply exhaust their military, exhaust their resources in multiple theaters, uh, what, what, what's called in the military horizontal escalation. The fact of the matter is, from a, a Russian state perspective, from a, from a perspective of the Russian military doctrine, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a local conflict. 
NATO is not involved militarily, the war is not regionalized. And as long as the war is not regionalized, there's still little reason for Russia to resort to nuclear weapons. So, of course, when it comes to Russia, our mind always goes to the worst case scenario, and that's the nuclear option. It would be irresponsible not to, to, not to take that seriously. The fact of the matter is the, the chances of Russia using nuclear weapons are still quite low in, in a local war of this nature. And if you look at what Russian uh, military steps that we're seeing today, they're geared towards things like, again, making sure that everybody's very cold, to be perfectly frank, targeting infrastructure, targeting the country's energy grid. They are about starving the population, starving the world, and that's what we're seeing with the food crisis. They're about breaking Western unity. They're not about, they're about uh, blackmailing the West and threatening to use nuclear weapons, But, but, but so far we're not there yet. Wow. I feel sorry for Ukraine. It sounds like this is a long war coming ahead and, and, and hopefully the outcome will be a conventional victory on the battlefield. But we are in Australia and Australians do have concerns about the behavior of China in this region. Uh, Russia has a relationship with China, which seems to be getting closer. The, the no limits partnership that was agreed in February is regularly raised here. In the time we have left, is there anything that we should be paying attention to about Russia's role in this region and its partnership with China? Well, in brief, the, the important thing to know is that Russia and China are bound to remain close, not unlike Russia and Iran, because what we're seeing, especially in the context of Russia's isolation by the West, is Russia aligning itself with so-called global south. And when it comes to China, it, it's a complicated relationship. The fact of the matter is, Russia has de facto accepted it on a global scale, a junior position vis-a-vis China. In the Middle East, what you're seeing is a division of labor, if you will, where uh, Russia is primarily focused on the military realm and China is more focused on the economic realm. That's not a clash of interests. Again, that's, right, that's a division of labor. And of course, long term, we can foresee changes with China potentially taking a more the military dimension. The other interesting thing to note is historically, Russia doesn't want to be second to anyone. It is simply that Russia's desire to to change the global international system, Russia's resentment of American primacy in world affairs, overshadows all other interests. And both Russia and China, for different reasons, do not like American leadership in world affairs. I see. So whatever binds them, and perhaps they are quite different in their worldviews still, but whatever binds them is common antipathy to the U.S. Yes, Excellent, Anna. Thank you. It's been a sobering discussion, but a really interesting one. Uh, thanks, thank you for coming into Aspie. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.